0: We read from Isaiah 52, uh, from verse 13 through to the end of chapter 53. Let's read and hear together God's Word. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a a root out of dry ground. but He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with His wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to His own way, and the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and He was afflicted, yet He opened not His mouth Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Amen. I don't know how your memory is, but I have the curse and blessing of an extremely poor memory. Uh, For the most part, it's a curse. If at some point you've told me something and I've forgotten it, um, then please don't take it personally. I've done it to everybody else in the room as well. Um, But just occasionally, having a bad memory can be a blessing. Uh, I have the amazing ability to watch a film or read a book, and I can have the most amazing twist in the end, and uh, then maybe six months later, I can watch the same film or read the same book and be astonished all over again. Who, who, Who could have seen that coming? An amazing thing. When it comes to what we know of Jesus and even this summary of of the Christian faith that we've been looking at in the apostles creed in a sense we all suffer from having too good a memory we know what's coming and because we know what's coming it stops surprising us but in reality we come this week to a huge twist in the tale this is a development which if we weren't so used to it would just make us gasp in astonishment just think of what we've learned so far as we've looked at the creed, about the person of Jesus. We learned about God the Father, and then we turned to Jesus. I believe we've said in Jesus, the Christ, the Anointed One, God's ultimate prophet, His perfect priest, His glorious King. I believe in Him as God's only Son, the second person of the Trinity, God Himself, the One in whom all the fullness of deity dwells, through whom all things were made, for whom all things were made. This is who we're talking about. I believe in Him as our Lord, as God Himself in human flesh, the King of all kings, the one to whom every man, woman, and child owes total allegiance. I believe He was conceived by the Holy Spirit coming into existence in a unique way to signify His unique status, His unique suitability and qualifiedness to save men and women. I believe He was born of the Virgin Mary. He, God, became one of us and came into His world. I believe in this Jesus Christ who… what? Who entered His world in glory and with fanfare, who lived in the, 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 the greatest… or who ruled from the greatest throne in the greatest city in the greatest nation. Who came and was immediately acknowledged and served and glorified by every man, woman, and child with the devotion that should be His? I believe in Jesus Christ who suffered. It's an amazing thing, this creed, that when, when the drafters of this creed put together a statement of the significance of Jesus, they laid down the details of His birth and the details of his death, and in between, the summary of his life on earth, he suffered. This glorious Jesus was the man of sorrows. This is just astounding. Our jaws should drop every time we think of this. He suffered. The one to whom every human being owes everything, submitted to suffering at the hands of some man called Pontius Pilate. It's intriguing that Pilate gets a mention in the Creed, by the way. Um, I think it speaks of a couple of things. I think it serves to emphasize the historical nature of these events. The suffering and crucifixion of Jesus are real, they are true events of of history. They occurred in a particular place, at a particular time, under a particular man. And I I think it just hints, too, again, at the submission and the humility of this Christ. though he was the only Son of God, consented to suffer and die under this man who was a provincial Roman governor, no one particularly important in historical terms, long forgotten for everything except what he did to Jesus. But under him, the Son of God suffered. And, And already, just in that one word, we see something which is of immense significance. What what has probably been throughout history and remains today, what has probably been the the core central objection to the reality of the Christian faith or the existence of God? Listen to to this. This is an old version of it, but it's no different today. This is from David Hume, philosopher, Were a stranger to drop suddenly into this world, I would show him as a specimen of its ills, a hospital full of diseases, a prison crowded with malefactors and debtors, a field strewn with carcasses, a fleet floundering in the ocean, a nation languishing under tyranny, famine, or pestilence. Honestly, I do not see how you can possibly square with an ultimate purpose of love. How can there be a God? How can there be a good and loving God while the people He created and supposedly loves suffer like this? How can I believe in God when I have cancer? How can God... How can God be good when He allowed the person I love the most to die? Where is God when I lose my job, when I can't afford my home? Where is He when people hurt me and when relationships disintegrate and when my heart breaks? Well, I believe in Jesus Christ who suffered significance of that statement is that at these times, God is right here with us. In His suffering, He is identifying with us in our suffering. There is nothing we go through that we can say to God, you just don't get it. You you don't understand. You haven't suffered as much as I have. For the Son of God to become a human being, to take on human flesh is unspeakable sacrifice in itself. But then, of course, he's born into squalor and into the lowest social order. As a child, he's a refugee. He's an asylum seeker. He knows poverty and homelessness. He is, as he grows, rejected even by those closest to him. His own family try to have him committed. He is ultimately betrayed by one of his closest followers. He is abandoned by the rest of them, and he's subjected to the most harrowing and horrifying death which the sadistic ingenuity of the Roman military machine had been able to invent. Here is God the Son, described in Isaiah 53.3 as despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, and in that, that powerful phrase in the ESV, acquainted with grief acquainted with grief. Grief is no stranger to him. He knows grief well. He is, in, in the words of the NIV, familiar with suffering. And surely, surely God is saying something deeply significant to us in our suffering when He chooses to enter into the world in this way and to live this life and die this death. How do other religions respond to human suffering? Because we all have to face it. Other religions say, endure it. Embrace it. Find serenity in it. Transcend it. Ignore it. Deny it. In Jesus Christ, the man of sorrows, God is saying to us, suffering is real. We don't have to pretend that it's not. It's it's what humanity as a whole has chosen for itself by rebelling against my plan for human life. The moment you did that, suffering entered into the world. But now let me come, and let me stand with you, and let me suffer alongside you as one of you. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, in the most profound way. Now, does that answer all our questions? You know, can can we then, well, let's go home, and the problem of pain has been solved? No, no, it doesn't answer our questions, but it does tell us that whatever the reason is for suffering, it's not that God is distant and doesn't care. It's not that we are outside His protection or even His good and loving purpose. Questions remain, and this side of heaven, they always will. But, but of course, we, we know that what we most need in our suffering is not a proposition that's going to make sense of it in our minds. What we need in our suffering is is a person with us, comforting us. Don't need a reason, but a relationship. Someone we can trust to see us through. Our, our doubts and our questions may not evaporate overnight, but it is bam to our souls to know that God is right here with us. I believe in Jesus Christ, who suffered. He knows whatever I go through. He knows. We are those who, walking through the fiery furnace, find that there is a fourth figure mysteriously with us. I probably quoted before um, the poem, a well-known poem that a man called Edward Shiloto, who was a minister, and wrote in the aftermath of the First World War, all the horror and, and pain that he had seen there, a poem called Jesus of the Scars. Let's just, just give you the opening and closing verses. If we have never sought we seek thee now. Thine eyes burn through the dark, our only stars. We must have sight of thorn marks on thy brow. We must have thee, O Jesus of the scars. The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds only God's wounds can speak, and not a god has wounds." but thou alone. This is our God, the man of sorrows, the one who suffers with us. And the person who has faith in this, Jesus Christ who suffers, simply says this, no, I I may not understand everything. I do not pretend to understand everything. I may be uncertain of many things, but this I know, God came into this world and suffered with us as one of us, and He shared our lot, and He died for us. I know this, and because I know it, I know He can be trusted. And so, on the basis of what I know, I trust Him for what I don't know. It's always the question when it comes to suffering. I'm sure I've said this before, but it's always the question. The question for most things, most of the kind of mysteries and perplexities of life that we cannot figure out, the question is not, and and don't don't be intimidated by the world when it comes and taunts you because you can't provide simple answers to the mysteries of life. The question is not, can I provide a simple answer to this question? Do I know the answer? Most of the deepest questions of life don't have an answer in that simple sense. The question is, do I know enough? To trust God for what I don't know. And the cross, above all things, screams to us, yes, you know enough. In the light of this, you know enough to trust Him for what you don't know. The fascinating thing is that um, as I think of people I've known who've suffered the most, um, Christians who've gone through appalling times, as I think of them now, They they stand out in my mind as some of the most Christ-like people I've ever known. I'm I'm sure that many of you will will be able to think of people in that category. They they have proved uh, George MacDonald, who influenced C.S. Lewis, and George MacDonald once said, the Son of God suffered unto the death, not that we might not suffer, but that our sufferings might be like His. We, We follow Him into suffering. So, the suffering of Christ transforms our view of human suffering. But, but there's more to it than that because the suffering and crucifixion of Christ also, one of the crucial things that they do is they unmask the seriousness of sin. The cross of Christ unmasks the seriousness of sin and it measures it in two ways. It's very important that we see this in our culture today that so minimizes and downplays the seriousness of sin. First, the seriousness of sin is measured by its consequences. At Calvary, God gives the lie to the idea that sin is just, sin is just a, kind of, it's a bit naughty, but it's ultimately harmless fun. As long as nobody gets hurt, you know, everything's, everything's okay. As long as you don't harm anybody, what's the problem? Here's the problem. Sin does harm people. That's the problem. It often does it immediately. Sin does that, often harms people immediately, but it always harms people in the end because this universe in which we live is a moral universe. That's just the kind of universe that God has created. This is a moral world. And in a moral world, sin has consequences. And the cross of Christ shows us just how serious those consequences are. The Bible is always clear that Jesus' death on the cross has to do with sin. Here we're seeing the ultimate result of sin, the punishment that's due to sin. Here we learn the truth We see sin for what it really is, for what it really does to men and women. Listen again to to that description, Isaiah 52 and 53, this uncannily accurate prophecy written hundreds of years before the events it describes. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, his form beyond that of the children of mankind. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief And as one from whom men hide their faces, He was, and then there's a whole list as you go through, He was despised, stricken, smitten, afflicted, pierced, crushed, punished, wounded, oppressed, cut off. What what we see at the cross as we come to it, the the physical and mental and spiritual anguish is horrific. It It is the complete undoing. It is the unraveling of a human being. He is unmade. He is dehumanized. He is destroyed. What we see at the cross is a man turned into meat. And what we must see is that this is what sin does to people. This is what happens. And and what we must realize then is that this is a picture of what satan wants to do to every one of us he wants to unmake us as creatures who bear god's image he wants to unravel and torment and destroy us this is the seriousness of sin little bit of naughty fun this is what it does Apart from the grace of God. So, we can measure its seriousness by its consequences, and then we look at the same thing from another angle, and we can say that at the cross, the seriousness of sin can also be measured by its cost, by what God has to do in order to defeat it and save us from it. Because the cross is emphatically not… Don't misunderstand what I've just said. The cross is emphatically not something that Satan does to Jesus. That that is not what's happening at the cross. It is fundamentally something that God chooses to do. And again, Isaiah is clear. Chapter 53, verse 10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. It's not that God took pleasure in it for, for itself. Of course not. But rather than leave sinners to suffer the consequences of their own sins, He planned on purpose to take those consequences on Himself. And so, if you remember how Peter describes it, the day of Pentecost, Acts 2, um, Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. It's God who's acting at Calvary. And it's a measure of the seriousness of sin that God, in order to deal with it, had to give the one thing in the universe that is more precious than anything else. He had to give his own own perfect, infinitely precious self in the person of his son, this sacrificial lamb without blemish or defect. So he comes and he bears the suffering and he bears the cross. And there is indescribable physical pain, but even greater spiritual anguish. Let Let me... read to you. This is how one theologian describes what happened at Calvary and what it meant for Christ to to do what we're looking at today in the Creed, to suffer under Pontius Pilate and be crucified. This is the cost love is willing to bear, to be damned from God, to be fully identified with sin, and to be the damned thing on which God could not look. He would be repulsive to his father and become the great reject from whom all the goodness of God would recall. He became, as Luther said, the greatest sinner that ever was. Jesus became the greatest thief, murderer, adulterer, robber, desecrator, blasphemer there has ever been anywhere in the world. Every detail of his death declared, this is what God thinks of you and of the sin you bear." He experienced death unmitigated, unqualified, death with the sting, a death without light, comfort, or encouragement into that tiny space, His body outside Jerusalem. And into that fraction of time, the ninth hour on Good Friday, God gathered the sin of the world, and there and then in the flesh of His own Son, He condemned it. There's something awesome happening there. And something that tells us about the seriousness of sin, it unmasks it by letting us see its awful consequences and its awful cost. But of course, the great and central paradox of the Christian faith is that it's in and through all of this, this horror and suffering and misery that God brings about the greatest, most glorious, most triumphant, most joyful event in history because the, the, the cross not only unmasks the seriousness of sin, it also undoes the curse of sin. It not only shows us the full horror of the problem, it offers a way out. Do you know um, the... Number One Ladies' Detective Agency, that, that series of novels. I'm sure many of you will have read some of them. Alexander McCall Smith. Um, and, and there's one of them, uh, the main character, Precious Ramotswi. Um, She has a, a, an adopted daughter who is paralyzed and she, she hopes that there will be some medical treatment which will help her her daughter. And she takes him to the missionary doctor, Dr. Moffat. And uh, she she's remembering in this passage the time, the, the moment when she was told that no There's nothing, there is nothing that can be done for her. Dr. Moffat said she's had an infection of the spinal cord, and he said, the the best way I can describe it is that that her spinal cord is like a rope that has been cut in two. Precious Romance Way replies, of course, a rope, a rope that's been cut in two can be tied back together again, but a spinal cord can't. Then says, Mrs. Moffat had taken her hand for comfort and they had sat there in silence for a while. Sometimes it seemed as if the world itself was broken, as if there was something wrong with all of us, something broken in such a way that it might not be put together again. The chapter is called, As If the World Itself Was Broken. The Bible says, the world is broken. That's why your pain is real. But by the grace of God, it is not broken in such a way that it cannot be put back together again. Sickness and suffering and death are not a part of the world God created. He created perfection. Adam and Eve rebelled against Him. They brought upon themselves and their whole environment and all of their children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren and all the rest of us a curse. The serpent was cursed for his wickedness. The earth itself was cursed and made hostile to life in ways it had never been before. Human beings were cursed in the normal and good processes of work and childbearing, and they were expelled from the garden where they'd known perfect peace with God. None of that was God's design. So all due to the curse that we brought upon ourselves by our sin, that self-inflicted curse is the reason why we suffer it's the reason why we die. It's the reason why our bodies break down and fail. Every, every death certificate ever issued, when, when it's got that line that says, cause of death, every death certificate ever issued should say, sin. It's the cause of all our death. It's the cause of all death. Sin. But even after men and women rebelled against him, God was gracious. He chose a people to reveal himself to them, to love in a special way. He gave them the law so that they could once more live in relationship to him, even in a fallen and broken world. He explained so clearly that obedience to him would bring blessings, and disobedience would bring curses. You read Deuteronomy 28 sometime, that's what that's all about. But they and we continued to disobey, And now, because all have sinned, all are subject to the curse of sin, which is suffering and death. Listen to what Deuteronomy 21 says. If a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. Strange regulation, isn't it? Someone has, has committed a capital offense. They're to be executed. They're hanged from a tree. But you're not to leave their bodies there overnight. Why? Because a hanged man is cursed by God. For the Jews, there was a special significance in the particular method of execution which the Romans had devised. To hang from bars of wood was to hang under the curse of God. We considered him rejected by God, says Isaiah. Anyone who hangs from a tree is under his curse, bearing the consequences of rebellion against him. And so here you have this ultimate paradox, this supreme paradox. Jesus, who is perfect, bearing the curse. Jesus, who has obeyed in terms of the covenant, obey and it will bring blessing, disobey and it will bring curse. Jesus obeys and receives curse. Why does He hang on a cross? He hangs there for the the curse due to others. He substitutes Himself in place of those who really deserve to hang there, those who have sinned, those who have brought the curse upon themselves. His blessing goes to them. Their curse comes to Him. Galatians 3, Paul explains what was happening. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And, and so you need to, as, we, as you read through the, the, the passage that we read earlier, Isaiah 52, 53, you need to hear the insistent language of substitution in that passage. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, as if He was being cursed for His own sin. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. It just goes on. With His wounds, we are healed. We, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to His own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. people out there who who deny that, that Jesus died in our place as a substitute for our sin. Well, you have to ignore what Isaiah 52 and 53 says about 20 times in order to deny that. And that's why the cross of Jesus Christ is simultaneously the most ugly and most beautiful event in the history of the universe. It's the most horrific and the most glorious thing that has ever happened. Here in this space, at this moment in time, sin is punished. All the sins of all God's people, God's curse poured out in full To the point that this perfect man is undone, desecrated, beyond recognition. But He does it for us. When we come to the end of the Bible, which is just another way of saying when we come, when we come to the end of time, what do we find? Given that precious insight into the glory of heaven, Revelation 22.3, there will no longer be any curse gone. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. Why? Because Jesus died and mourned and cried and suffered. He did it for us as our substitute. He exhausted the curse. That's why the old order of things will pass away. Everything will be made new. That's why every consequence of sin will be gone. All sickness, all disease, weariness, broken relationships, pain, grief, sadness, death, all of it gone forever, all sorrow taken away by the man of sorrows and every tear wiped away by the God of grace. That's the promise to those who will believe. I want to close by um, borrowing from Alistair McGrath, McGrath, a theologian at Oxford. Um, He gives four, four pictures four images of the cross. I just want to give you these pictures to to try to bring out something of the significance of the cross. Here's the first picture you are driving. You're driving along the road and you come to a sign that's a a red triangle and it has, has a cross in it. And you're coming to a crossroads. A crossroads, what is a crossroads? It's a place where two roads meet. It's a meeting place. The cross is a meeting place. At the cross, we meet God like nowhere else. We're confronted by Him. We meet Him. Here we come. We meet God. Here's the, the second picture. You're in school. You're at your desk, and you're, t- you're taking a test, and you write down various answers to, to the test, and you hand it in. The next day, you get the paper back, and you look down, and you see that where you said five plus seven equals eleven... There is there's a cross. A cross is a sign that something is wrong. Something is wrong. We, we don't normally, in the ordinary run of life, in everyday life, we don't normally see the seriousness of sin, do we? We, we, we get glimpses of it sometimes um, in the horrors of our world and in the, the, the little horrors of everyday life that we see around us but we we see nothing like the full seriousness of sin. Why? Because God is patient and long-suffering, wants all to come to the knowledge of Him, doesn't want anyone to perish, and so He waits, He restrains His wrath. But at the cross, we see what God really thinks of sin. At the cross, we see the curse being inflicted to the fool. This is how serious sin is. The cross is a sign that something... Is wrong. Here's a third picture. You're at home, you're writing a letter. You're separated from a loved one, and you could text them or write them an email, but we all know that a letter is better. And so you're writing a letter, and you write all that you have to say, and you sign your name, and then you mark a cross. A kiss. The cross is a sign of love. Here we see like nowhere else, not only. This is is the the wonderful marvel of the cross. At one and the same time, we see the furious wrath of God upon our sin. But we also see the immense love of God for His people because God Himself has come to bear our sin. The cross is a meeting place. It's a sign that something's wrong. It's a sign of love. And then then a, a fourth picture, which will be familiar to you and which you'll be experiencing again soon, most of you. You're in a little booth and there is a piece of paper with a list of names and you look down the list and you mark a cross against one of them. The cross is a point of decision, it comes to us, it confronts us and says you must decide, you must respond cannot stand before the cross of Christ and shrug your shoulders and remain neutral. You must receive Him or reject Him. This is how it is. And and some of us have been making that decision, and I put that deliberately in that way. Some of us have been making that decision for many years because it's not not a one-off decision that you make, and then this is a decision you make every day. I will respond in faith today. I will believe. us has been doing that for many years, but maybe, maybe there's someone here and you haven't. You've not done this. You know you've not done this. Maybe you're a teenager. Maybe you've been hearing about this for years and thinking one day I, I should really. The cross is a point of decision. So, so, so let me just make it clear for you today. Let me make it a little bit easier for you today. The question is not whether you will decide. The question is what you will decide. Because you either bend the knee before him, trust, receive all that he has to offer you, believe in him, know him, or you reject him. To postpone the decision is to reject him. And it is never a safe thing to do. The cross is a point of decision. Decide now. So that you can walk out of the door today with your heart filled with joy and the knowledge and being able to say, I believe in Jesus Christ who suffered under Pontius Pilate for me and who was crucified for me. Let's pray. Father, this call of your Word comes to us fresh today to allow Jesus to take the curse that we deserve and to receive from Him the blessing that He earned, to take part in that stupendous exchange, that wonderful substitution, so we pray that we might respond in faith and repentance and in faith to the word of your cross, whether we've done so before or not, that today we might do that, that we might know this this is our God, we meet Him here This is how serious sin is. The sin that I have committed in my life, this is no small thing. What I see at Calvary, this is what my sin does. It's what it will do to me unless I deal with this, unless Christ deals with this. Father, melt our hearts with the, the sign of your love towards us, the immensity of the love that gives like this for us. And so by your grace, give to us the gift of faith, that we might respond, that we might know ourselves, redeemed by this wonderful Savior, by this powerful cross. Here our prayers we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.